Hey, Drilled listeners and Damages listeners. This is a special episode that's dropping in both feeds because there's some big, important legal news happening in the climate world this week. On Monday morning this week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the West Virginia versus EPA case. This is a very weird situation. The case started as an argument about the Clean Power Plan. That's an Obama administration policy that was, in fact, never implemented. Why is this case moving forward? Good question. The Supreme Court could still decide not to rule in the case. That's an argument that was made by the EPA that this case really shouldn't be in the courts anymore. But they spent an awful lot of time asking questions, so that seems unlikely. The good news is they don't seem inclined to chuck out previous rulings like AEP versus Connecticut and Massachusetts versus EPA, which had to do with whether or not the EPA was allowed to regulate greenhouse gases. That's good. That was a big fear going into this. The bad news, this obscure law that used to almost never come up in the Supreme Court, but suddenly has been a lot in the last couple of years, came up a bunch, especially in the conservative justices questioning. That law is called the Major Questions Doctrine. Sounds really boring, possibly pretty scary. We're going to get into that and what happened in this case and what could happen, what it all means, with a couple of experts, Jason Rylander from the Center for Biological Diversity and Richard Revez, a professor at New York, and Richard Revez, professor at NYU Law. And of course, I got up early to stream the oral arguments and tape them. So we'll give you a little taste of what folks were saying in court, too. That's all coming up after this quick break. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled and or Damages, depending on where you're listening. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself, too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Does it make sense to you that the same company that controls half of online retail 
also passively eavesdrops on your private conversations at home? How about the idea that a single company controls 90% of internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone? Big tech is more powerful than most countries, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. It's time to put a layer of protection between these guys and your online activity. And that's why I use ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Every site you visit, video you watch, message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you use ExpressVPN on your devices, the software hides your IP address. That's something that big tech uses to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. This has become sadly very important in my line of work. It's also why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET, Wired, TechRadar, and a lot of other sites. What I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. You download the app, it's very easy to install, you tap a button, and then you're protected. I like hardly even think about it anymore, and it's just working away in the background on all my devices. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that mines your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online. Visit expressvpn.com slash drilled. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash drilled to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash drilled right now to learn more. I'm Richard Revez. I'm a professor uh, of environmental law at New York University School of Law, where I direct the Institute for Policy Integrity, which is a think tank and advocacy organization working on uh, clean energy and climate change and environmental issues. I'm Jason Rylander. I'm an attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity in their Climate Law Institute. Great. And why, Jason, are we going to hear arguments about the Clean Power Plan, a policy that was never implemented? That's a very good question. And I think the first issue that the court is going to have to take up is whether they should be hearing this case at all. As you noted, the Clean Power Plan uh, has never been in effect. Uh, It was developed under the Obama administration. It was repealed by the Trump administration and uh, has never, ever become law. So the court is basically hearing an argument about pollution regulations that don't exist. Well, before the oral argument, I had the very strong sense that the right thing for the court to do was not to decide this case and to dismiss it. Uh, The Supreme Court has a mechanism for dismissing cases as improvidently granted. And it's not something it does frequently, but on average, it's been doing it about twice a year. And this case seems like an excellent candidate for that disposition because there is no regulation in place. The Clean Power Plan is not in place, and the Affordable Clean Energy Rule is not in place. The Clean Power Plan, of course, was the Obama administration 
regulation of the greenhouse gas emissions of existing power plants and the affordable clean energy rule was the Trump administration's toothless and potentially counterproductive replacement. But neither are in place and neither would go back into effect no matter what the court does. So essentially, no matter what the court does, there's not going to be a clean power plant in place and there's not going to be an affordable clean energy rule in place. So all the court could do is give EPA advice. This is known in this lingo as an advisory opinion on what its future rule might look like. But the federal courts don't have the authority to issue advisory opinions. Um, That's been clear since essentially the beginning of the Republic. So going into the case, I was, you know, the strong sense that this was the right thing for the court to do. Coming out of the case, I still think that that is the right thing for the court to do for exactly the same reason that I thought about that before. But I, you know, have to say that while these issues were discussed, it's not clear to me that five justices would find that approach compelling. Mm. Can I have you define for people the major questions doctrine? Because that came up a bit and I I think the general public might not know what that means. Yeah, the general public would be well served to know what that means. So the major questions doctrine is a doctrine that was used in the past extremely rarely. I mean, the Supreme Court maybe invoked it once every five years, only five times before this past year in its whole history, um, starting around 1980, um, in cases that were actually quite exceptional for. But in the last couple of years, it's a doctrine that's been invoked promiscuously by opponents of regulation. And the major questions doctrine is this offshoot of the non-delegation doctrine. And basically what it says is that Congress has to speak clearly in delegating authority to an agency uh, for that agency to be able to take action. An agency can't do something without congressional authorization. If an agency decision is going to have vast economic or political significance, it needs to be authorized explicitly by Congress um, and that the agents shouldn't be doing it under kind of delegated authority in a somewhat um, open-ended statute. But now, I mean, this term, the court has already invoked it um, in striking down the OSHA vaccine and testing mandate, striking down the eviction moratorium, and it obviously played a big role in the argument yesterday. So it's become, you know, it's gone from something quite extraordinary that happens where the court really only deals with it every every several years, maybe every five years, to something that maybe ends up as a central issue in the Supreme Court multiple times a year. And this whole transformation has happened very quickly, I'd say, in the last couple of years. And most of the briefing in this case is focusing on just this issue, the sort of major questions doctrine and whether the EPA can apply its regulations, you know, broadly uh, to address, you know, not just emissions that are coming directly from power plants themselves, but whether they can create a broader system of emissions reductions that would be more effective. And the interesting thing about it is that, uh, you know, the states and and most of the power companies uh, are not impacted by this regulation uh, at at all. I I mean, I think to put it, to put it simply, uh, there's clearly an anti-regulatory appetite among certain justices of this court. And, and we've seen that in a number of different cases dealing with the extent of agency authority. And this idea that they can use this major questions doctrine to kind of look at a regulation and decide in the abstract, 
whether Congress granted authority to address that issue without even really looking at an actual rule is bizarre. Uh, it is an expansion of judicial power in a way that is really pretty inappropriate. And, and we've seen commentators, you know, kind of across the political spectrum warning against this expanded use of the major questions doctrine to attack agency rulemaking. But that that seems to be where a few of the justices want to go. I've heard it described as sort of a new tool that conservatives are. Well, I know it's not a new doctrine, but it's um, newly Newly popular, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the very extensive use of it for what you know would have been thought of as like run-of-the-mill regulations. EPA has been regulating emissions of power plants literally since the you know early days of the Clean Air Act in 1970, and now this becomes kind of a big thing. And it's it's a product exclusively of a significant change in the composition of the court. Okay, I'm going to play a little bit from the oral arguments. You'll hear Justice Sotomayor here questioning one of the attorneys for West Virginia, Lindsay C. Massachusetts versus EPA said that carbon dioxide is a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. So that's clear, right? We're not challenging that, correct. All right. You're not challenging AEP Connecticut, where we said that Congress clearly delegated to the EPA the discretion about whether and how to regulate carbon dioxide, correct? We are not disputing the portion that said Congress spoke to whether and how. We are disputing that how means that EPA can do that. I understand what you're saying, but this is really a step further than anything we have said before. All of our other cases, whether it's regulation of tobacco or regulation of uh, evictions under major questions doctrine, um, have not addressed the how. Now we're going to the how. You know, I, I think the worst case scenario here is that they cabin EPA's authority in a way that is going to make it more difficult for the Biden administration and future administrations to regulate effectively under Section 111 of the Clean Air Act. The mm. good news is the Clean Air Act is broader than that. And there are a lot of other ways that we can get at greenhouse gas pollutions. And we also know that you know greenhouse gas pollutions emerge from things other than stationary coal and um, gas power plants. Well, I think this this decision is probably going to mostly, if at all, affect EPA's authority to regulate the greenhouse gas emissions of the power sector, because regulating greenhouse gas emissions of the power sector has some peculiarities that don't arise in other contexts. So, um, you know, at all times, the supply of electricity and demand for electricity have to be balanced. You know, if they're not balanced, um, then, you know, bad things are going to happen to the grid, like, the, you know, blackouts or, you know, the equipment will get damaged. Um, and so, um, so, and, and that's not true for other products. So for example, um, you know, if some factory produces some manufactured good and the good doesn't sell in the market right away, you know, the factory can like send it to its warehouse and it can sit in the warehouse for six months. Um, you can't do that with electricity. And so that creates um, special uh, regulatory challenges that, you know, come from the functioning of the grid and um, that don't arise in other contexts. Now, you know, again, you know, the court could write a very broad opinion that could have all kinds of other repercussions. But, um but I, th- I think it will be hard for the court to avoid writing an opinion that focuses significant attention 
on the structure of the grid. And if it does that, probably the main impact will be on the greenhouse gas regulation of the power supply. But having said that, you know, each of these opinions reveals a mood about the court. And if the court is in a kind of expansive major questions mood, which it might be, then you'd expect that next year there'll be five other major questions cases in which in other contexts it will do other things uh, to um, uh, constrain the ability of federal regulatory agencies to address pressing uh, health, environmental, climate change, uh, consumer problems. I've heard the the sort of recent embrace of the major questions doctrine referred to as um, as part of a, an overall strategy to get to a Blockner era. <laughs> um, and I, I wonder if you think that's accurate or, you know, being dramatic and B, if you could summarize for people what that means. I would say that the court could be characterized as being interested in returning us to a pre-New Deal era, you know, because basically regulatory agencies, I mean, they, they pre-existed the New Deal for sure. They go back to the 19th century. But um, but the big explosion of regulatory agencies, the Federal Trade Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Communications Commission, those agencies were established during the New Deal, I mean, in, in response to the Great Depression in part. And that's when um, kind of the biz- significant pieces of the business of government started being done by um, agencies in the executive branch. And and I think that the efforts now might make it difficult for agencies to do that because typically Congress delegated to agencies fairly significant discretion and agencies then acted under that discretion. For example, some of these statutes, the New Deal statutes said regulate in the public interest and the agency determined what the public interest was and thereby took care of its obligation under the statute. But now, you know, open-ended delegations of that sort tend to be run through a major questions lens. And then the court has been, the courts have, that have done this have been very quick to find economic and political significance. And often the political significance just happens to be that there are, you know, a number of states on each side of litigation or there's controversy around the issue. But these days with a country this divided, there's political division over practically anything an agency does. So we've come up with a test that is in the eye of the beholder, and a beholder who's unsympathetic to the regulatory enterprise is going to be able to say that the regulation fits within the kind of major questions rubric. So I would put this as a return to before the New Deal. I mean, the Lochner era is actually goes back further. It was a significant decision of the Supreme Court back right at the beginning of the 20th century, where it dates back to 1905, where the court was very intrusive in invalidating federal and state statutes, um, mostly ones that regulated working conditions. And kind of the New Deal era brought an end to that. I mean, this is a little different because what's being struck down right now are not the statutes, but regulations promulgated under the statutes. Although a parallel effort, which is probably not at issue in this case, but, you know, is kind of related, is that the courts, there are justices who appear to be interested in reviving the non-delegation doctrine, which would lead to striking down statutes. 
Can you explain a little bit about the non-delegation doctrine? Well, the non-delegation doctrine, you know, prohibits delegations uh, to agencies that are so broad that the agency doesn't have an intelligible principle to guide its ex- the exercise of its discretion. But the courts so far have been quite receptive to finding limiting principles and have struck very few things. But uh, there are justices who I think want to revive a more um, robust use of the non-delegation doctrine and who might therefore either recast it in ways in which requires congressional decision on um, a much broader set of issues than has been true since the New Deal. We haven't seen that. Basically, the Supreme Court has struck down two cases on non-delegation doctrine in its history, both in 1936, never before and never after. But there is significant concern that uh, a parallel effort alongside this kind of robust use of the major questions doctrine would be a very aggressive use of the non-delegation doctrine. I don't think this case provides a good vehicle for that, and it wasn't significantly briefed or argued. So I think this case is more likely to end up exploring the the major questions doctrine. But you can certainly imagine a subsequent case in which justices were opposed to regulation, deciding that a revival of the non-delegation doctrine. I'm going to play another clip here on this major questions and non-delegation issue. You'll hear Justice Amy Coney Barrett here questioning Lindsay C. again. What is the daylight between the major questions doctrine and the non-delegation doctrine? So at the beginning of your argument, you talked about how the major questions doctrine can be understood as, you know, um, inspired by the separation of powers. And you talked about avoidance and non-delegation. So if the idea is that uh, Congress shouldn't delegate major questions to an agency, Is there any daylight between them? I think certainly that is a broad view of the non-delegation doctrine. It's not necessary for the court to go that far to say whether Congress could delegate these questions, because here it's clear Congress didn't. So I think the daylight between the two is really this question of, has Congress purported to delegate? The major questions clear statement canon is getting at that question. What did Congress think it was doing? What did Congress actually do with the words it put in the statute? And then it would be a separate question to say, if Congress clearly said, um, EPA, you may go forward and exercise this transformative power, that might be a separate non-delegation question. Okay, that's it for this time. Thanks for listening. I mentioned last time that we're not going to be doing these newsy update episodes in the main feed anymore. We're going back to narrative seasons for Drilled. The next one will be out in just a few weeks. If you like getting weekly updates like this and you want to follow along as I'm reporting various stories, please sign up as a subscriber in various places. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you're listening there right now, you can subscribe via Patreon. That's patreon.com slash drilled. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter. That's at drilledpodcast.com. Big thanks to our latest Patreon subscribers, Zachary Kramer, TJ McKenzie, Jane Van Dis, Jacqueline Kay, Ian Hegarty, Vanessa Warheit, Marcy Shaver, Molly J, Escott Anderson, Holly Howes, Becky Carter, Zawid Zabriski, Chris Kozak, Justin Bauman, Julia Eden, Reese Madigan, Adrian Cockcroft, Ludwig Kennedy, Melissa Bailey, Gladwin D'Souza, F. Lawler, Quinn Emmett, 
David Urbinder, Frank Berg, and Jesse Worker. You guys are awesome. I think a lot of you pledged after I was complaining about yet another mainstream media outlet stealing a bunch of reporting from Drilled. It actually happens a lot and it's pretty annoying. And I really wish that big mainstream outlets would just hire climate reporters if they want good climate reporting so bad. But in the meantime, I appreciate folks supporting what we're doing here and we will put that money to use pumping out more seasons. We've got at least two and hopefully three more narrative seasons planned for Drilled this year and weekly episodes for damages from now till the end of the year. Thanks again for the support and we'll see you next time.